The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 14th, 2019. On this week's show, Melissa Jacobs, a.k.a. The Football Girl, will join us to talk about the NFL's divisional playoffs. We'll also discuss the league's sudden dearth of black coaches, with the total going from seven at the start of the 2018 season down to the current number of two. And finally, Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine will be here to talk about Andy Murray, who's talking about retiring from tennis due to a painful hip injury. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Andy. I have to bid farewell to Andy. That's one of my favorite things about tennis tournaments is hearing British fans scream, Andy. Uh, hopefully there'll be another British player named Andy to help fill the gap. It doesn't have to be over. Andy. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. ESPN's Bill Barnwell has a piece up on Monday morning saying that we're set for what might be the most exciting Conference Championship Sunday in NFL history. The flip side to that is that this past weekend's divisional round was not, in fact, the most exciting divisional round in NFL history. All of the favorites, the Chiefs and the Patriots and the AFC, the Rams and the Saints and the NFC, won their games. Only the Saints' 20-14 to win over the Eagles was any uh, way exciting or competitive. And yet, we will generate a thrilling spectacular conversation with the help of Melissa Jacobs, who writes at The Football Girl and hosts The Football Girl podcast. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the Patriots who destroyed the Chargers. It was 41 to 28, but it was the classic not as close as the score would indicate game. They reached their eighth straight AFC title game. And here is what Tom Brady had to say afterwards. They're a good team, and uh, we played them earlier this year. You know, I know, you know, everyone thinks we suck and, you know, can't win any games. So we'll see. It'll be fun. Melissa, you wrote a piece over the weekend saying that you were one of the haters. You think the Patriots suck. For shame. Shame on you. Well, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say suck. Um, I don't think there's a person on the universe that would actually say the Patriots suck. I just, in my heart of hearts, I truly believed that the Chargers matched up well defensively. And I didn't think Gronk would be so mobile and, you know, just a litany of things I was wrong about. And so, so were a lot of other people for that matter. Well, everybody thinks the Patriots suck. That's why they've been favored in 69 straight games. Right. In which Brady was the starting quarterback. (laughs) Nobody believes in them, Stefan. No. I mean, come on. He's only made the playoffs, what, 16 out of 17 full seasons in the NFL? I mean, and only made it to the AFC championship game, what, eight times in a row now? Come on. I mean, he's terrible. They're basically the Browns. They they are basically the Browns. But look, look, can we we sort of analyze Tom Brady's 
Tom Brady's uh, his 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 vocal tenor there. Did he really mean that? Is he trying to do be do the provocative bulletin board thing? I mean, the Boston media apparently was kind of saying that the Patriots suck and this is not going to be their year. But at the same time, I detected a whiff of sarcasm in Brady's voice. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, Tom Brady is just such a, a weird creature, right? Because he, you know, there was that period for the first, you know, 10 years basically of his career where he still had that chip on his shoulder being the sixth round pit guy. And then he became TB12 and he like wasn't a human being anymore. And he's all about his brand. He's constantly, you know, he's producing all these really weird videos where he said, he did this this weekend. I am the lion. I am the river. And then <laughs> he'll give like, a, no, you go to, it's on his Instagram page. It's, it's trust me. Everybody listening should, should go. Lion river. Yes. Yes. Red, red 42. I'm Googling right now. Tom Brady, Lion right. River. He had, he voiced it. He voiced his video and he had some of his teammates participate. And it was like, rivers cannot be bent. I am a river. I mean, it was literally. So he's, he's like this, you know, non-human being. And then he does, you know, periodically drop in a comment like he did have to Tracy Wolfson that does humanize him. But I kind of think that there was a little hint of sarcasm as well. And it was a little, you know, okay, this is getting old. This is getting boring. Like we need something to rally around. We, we don't have masks. We're not going to show up at Arrowhead with, you know, dog masks on like the Eagles did last year. Cause you know, even though they are three point underdogs. So it's, it felt like a little carrot to just kind of, you know, ignite the, the area because there's, this is so commonplace for them. So yeah, the Patriots will be underdogs in the AFC Championship game to the Chiefs. But bef before we get to that, I wanted to talk about the Chargers for a second because the Chargers were credited with a brilliant defensive scheme against the Ravens. They played seven defensive backs on basically every play, shut down Lamar Jackson, who had been giving every other team so much trouble. And then in this game against Brady, who you know we're kind of jo we're joking around, but he has had trouble throwing the ball down the field this year. He's throwing a lot of passes underneath to running backs and to Julian Edelman. And it seemed like the Chargers played a scheme that was basically like, let's just sit back and hopefully Tom Brady won't be able to pick us apart because he's only Tom Brady. I mean, was it as dumb as it seemed? Yeah, I think yes, for sure. But there is also the, the Patriots offensive line just crushed them. I mean, they couldn't even think about getting a lane to Tom Brady because they couldn't even get off the block. You I know, guess it would have looked different if Bosa and Ingram had been able to get pressure on Brady, which they did not. Right. right. And Brady has been prone to being rattled this season when you can get pressure on him. And I guess we all, myself included, of course, thought that because of what we had seen in the previous game that there would be pressure on Brady. It was going to be how is Brady going to respond to this clear pressure that's coming I mean, it never, never came. Well, well, and was that was that just coaching hubris on the part of the Chargers that they went with this four man front and sitting seven defensive backs, um, or was it just great execution by the by by Brady to do what he's done his entire career? What which about is the pick offensive apart. line? Well, that's we're discrediting well, the offensive line. Well, the, the offensive line and Brady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor offensive linemen. 
always getting shirked. Um, no, I mean, the, they didn't adjust. I mean, it, you know, I think their game plan was fine coming in. And then when the Patriots had that seven minute drive to open the game, I mean, they, they won the coin toss. They elected to keep the ball, which never happens in today's NFL. And then they just completely set the tone and they were, I mean, they did have a lot of, you know, underneath passes to, you know, to Edelman and they were running it, you know, just, just as you said, and, and they're just so methodical. And then the Chargers just just never adjusted. And I think part of it, too, you, you have to look at the bye week thing and the advantage of the bye week and having a, having that week to, to rest up because no NFL player starts the season or is healthier at this point than when they started the season. Every game takes a toll on body and, and mentally. And, you know, I, I think there's an element to that, too, you know particularly when you're playing on the road, even though the Chargers had a really good road record. Right. And, and Orange, Aaron Schatz noted also that for the for the Chargers, this was a 10 o'clock body clock road game. <laughs> um, and that definitely plays into how athletes feel. It was cold outside and the Patriots <laughs> had the two weeks rest. I mean, again, that's legitimate. Right. Cold and outside. Question, should they have stayed on the East Coast um, after Baltimore instead of going home? I think that's a legitimate question, too. Uh, let's talk about the Saints and the Eagles before we get to the AFC championship game. This was exciting, especially for Saints fans. Go Saints. Who dat? Um, <laughs> Melissa, you have written about, talked about the Nick Foles question. There's the $20 million contract, uh, you know, for next year that would be required if, if they were to keep him. Um, these last two games, he put them in position to win. He, in fact, did not drop the pass uh, in the Saints red zone at the end of the game. That was Elshon Jeffrey, who was very sad about that outcome. Um, what did you think of, you know, the Eagles kind of last stand here to defend their Super Bowl title? Yeah, it was it was a very unfortunate scene for them. I mean, I really I, I love I love the Saints as an organization. I love the Eagles as an organization. I kind of wanted them both to win, even though that's not possible. Um, it's funny because you know if Alshon Jeffrey catches that ball, I mean, who knows what happens? You know, the next pass could could go through a receiver's hands and be picked off, or you know, who who maybe they don't score. But you have to think if he catches that and they score that. How how can you not pay Nick Foles? Because <laughs> that that was the big lingering question over this game, and it kind of felt like he said his goodbyes. And and Doug Peterson in his post game comments said his goodbyes. It was just the the tone com- completely changed. Um, I mean, I mean the Saints the Saints were aside from you know the the first quarter were were pretty incredible, and it's you know the, it's hard to defend Michael Thomas, but. You know, the, the Eagles, you know, the Eagles felt like they had this magic thing going and it was, it was pretty shocking to, to see it end the way it did. Um, so it's, it's I, because of the way it ended, it does kind of feel like Foles is going to exit, even though, and I'm not managing the money there. I, I wouldn't let him walk out the door. Well, this is the importance of narrative, right? Stefan, um, that outcome that we just described has nothing to do with Foles. And yet I think Melissa is right. I think there's a difference in how they would treat him or see him if they had 
won this game rather than lost it in the way I'm they not did. so sure because I don't think that sentiment always plays that big a role in the decisions that front offices have to make. You know, Nick Foles is three years older than Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz, it's not like Carson Wentz is a bad quarterback. The opposite. Carson Wentz is potentially a, you know, another 10-year quarterback for this team at an all-pro level. He's already demonstrated that he's that good. Yes, he got hurt. Yes, he tore an ACL. Yes, he recovered from that ACL tear. Um, so they have to make a decision. Look, the best decision the Eagles could make is to keep both of them because, hey, that's kind of worked out pretty well over the last three years for this team to have two high caliber quarterbacks, one as an insurance policy or, you know, both as insurance policies for each other has made sense. Contractually, though, they can't afford that. And, and contractually, Nick Foles, if the Eagles choose, have to choose one or the other, Nick Foles is the one that pretty much has to go because of the way their contracts are structured now and who's available to leave and who isn't. Yeah, right. I, I tend to agree. But at the same time, it's, you know, to, to have a quarterback that is proven it in the playoffs. Is, is, I mean, we saw Philip Rivers isn't that quarterback. Andrew Luck isn't that quarterback. You know, Nick Foles is that quarterback. And it, I, I would be very, very, very nervous having him walk out the front door. But again, I don't I don't manage the money. So but the Saints. More than uh, they had a drive that went for longer than eleven minutes, Stefan, and that went one hundred and seventeen yards just because of all the penalties. Uh, converted a third and sixteen, Michael Thomas converted a second and twenty to Michael Thomas. This was the game where um, you know the other three games this weekend. There was like maybe if you change like forty different plays, the outcome would have been different. But this game had you know a Saints fake punt, a Saints touchdown on fourth down, those that third and sixteen, that second and twenty, the drop pass by Alshon Jeffrey, just like absolutely no reason that the Saints should have won this game versus the Eagles. Just it just happened to be that a couple plays turned out. And, and you could have actually said that if if Alshon Jeffrey had caught the pass and the Eagles had won, absolutely no game. The Eagles should have won that game. They scored right out of the box, two touchdowns very quickly. They looked anemic the rest of the way. The Saints converted some crazy plays to win. I, I think you could have said the same thing about either team. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. Um, but but the Saints defense, I mean, we, we need to give especially the, the secondary credit, Marshawn Lattimore. I mean, you have to you got you gotta make those interceptions when they're presented to you in the playoffs, and he did, and that was the deciding factor. Right. The first interception that that, that Lattimore made, you know, conceivably the Eagles make that catch instead of an interception and they are up twenty one nothing. Amazing right. ath- athletic play. Yes. That was a great, great play. And the Saints defense didn't allow any points to the Eagles after the opening minutes, like, yeah. which was pretty remarkable. Yep. Um, all right. So the championship games, um, Chiefs and Patriots, it was 43 to 40 Patriots win in Kansas City in the regular season. Saints was 45 to 35 um, win at home over the Rams. So we're going to have the same matchups in the same stadiums. Um, Melissa, you want to start with the AFC game. I'm rooting for Andy Reid. I, w- I love Andy Reid. Not Patrick Holmes. You're rooting for Andy Reid. I'm rooting for Andy Reid to quarterback them to victory. What do we think about the matchup between these two teams? Obviously, a very close game during the regular season. Was there anything that um, the Chiefs might have seen from the Patriots' success against the Chargers that they would be able to scheme against? Or is it just, again, about whether they'll be able to get pressure on Brady? Yeah, I, I think it's very much what will they be able to get pressure. I mean, I think 
most of us were shocked at what we saw from the Chiefs defense this weekend. And, you know, it's they're, obviously they're going to have the home crowd in their favor, and that is a huge advantage. Um, that stadium is going to be rocking just like the other one is um, in New Orleans. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's all going to boil down to pressure because in the earlier game, though, the Patriots were dealing with with more injuries. They're they're pretty much completely healthy at this point, so it, it really does change. And, and what I think we saw from Gronk yesterday, um, you know, he he looks more spry. I mean, he looked. You know, we saw from the you know the game against Miami, the Miami Miracle. Like he literally looked like he had one foot in his football grave, and now he he looks rejuvenated. So that it just it changes the the scheming so much, but it's, it's so much of this is, you know, again, we saw it all weekend long about the trenches and, and, you know, who's more fired up, who's, who's more athletic and, and, you know, who wins those battles and that completely sets the framework for, for everything. Well, it's amazing what a little Toradol can do. So I think <laughs> Gronk's re- rehabilitation or rejuvenation is probably, um, you know, owes a little bit to the doctors. Whatever su- was supplement Julian Edelman took yesterday morning, by the way, and he was on fire getting like five extra yards on, you know, every, yeah. every catch. He probably also had a shot at Toradol in his butt before Maybe. the game. Um, Maybe. You know, I, I can't believe you're both talking about trenches. I mean, these two teams scored f- more than 40 points when they played yeah. each other earlier in the year. I mean, aren't, shouldn't we really be talking about who's just, who's going to get the 50 first? Um <laughs> And that will be the winner here. I mean, we're worried about pressure on Tom Brady. It's really Ken Patrick Mahomes put up, you know, 45 or 50 points on on the Patriots defense that I think is going to be the difference. Um, I also love just the, the Mahomes-Brady contrast is it's it's crazy. I mean, the age thing, my favorite quote of the year had to be Patrick Mahomes' mom after their game earlier in the season, I've got to give it to Tom Brady. We're the same age. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes' mom is the same age as Tom Brady. And she knows you, you know, she looks at someone 20 years younger. She's like, I can compete with anyone 20 years younger in anything. Yeah, whatever, whatever he's doing, you need to do, she said. <laughs> Clearly, TB12 for everyone. In the <laughs> And the NFC, Drew Brees is eight years older than Rams coach Sean McVay, I believe. McVay is still a, a child of 32 years old. Um, and again, I mentioned it. The Saints won this game 45 to 35. They had been up 35 to 14. The Rams came back and then Michael Thomas scored the late touchdown and pulled the phone out of the, uh, out of the goalposts. Um, I think the reason to focus on line play in these games Stefan, is that that Saints 11-plus-minute drive where they not only wore out the Eagles' defense, they wore out themselves, but being able to control the clock, like, it, you know, as Bill Barnwell wrote in his ESPN piece, these are the worst defenses we've ever seen in conference title games. The way to keep the Rams or the Saints or the Patriots or Chiefs from scoring, from scoring is to prevent 50, them yeah. from having the ball. Sure, And so whichever team, it's not like you're going to gain – massive chunks on the ground, although the Rams did do that against the Cowboys, but it's it's more just to keep the clock running and to keep the ball out of the quarterback's hands. But does that argue that these teams will try to alter their game plans in some way to take advantage of that, as opposed to trying to carve up 20 and 30 yard chunks of territory at a time? Kind of depends on who takes the lead early, right? Melissa, I mean, the, the Rams had some success running against the Saints in the first game, but then they just couldn't run because they were down by 21 points. 
Right. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that notion that, you know, I don't know that, that we'll see 50 in any of these games because it is, especially in playoffs, you just want to get out to an early lead and then you just want to do whatever you can to watch that clock, you know, start to drip down um, as much as possible. And yeah, I mean, the Rams showcase last weekend, I mean, CJ Anderson, you know, there's always like, and it seems like there's, it's a running back. I mean, the, the Patriots find it every year. Uh, so that CJ Anderson might be the big X factor for, for these whole playoffs. He's and a he large is a, man. He is a bowling ball and he, you know, he has a different style than, than Todd Gurley. And I mean, they, they had, they had almost an equal amount of touches in that game. So that's completely different to, to scheme against. And that's a guy, if he, if he can hold on to the ball, I mean, that potentially gives the rounds, you know, if they, they get the ball on the opening drive and the, you know, they can have some long methodical drive. There's no need as long as they're gaining yardage to, to chuck it down 35 yards, because if they can do that and take the, the home crowd out of it, that's, you know, that's their utopia, I believe. Just the narrative possibilities of these games, it really is perfect. Um, the coaches, Reed versus Belichick and Payton versus McVeigh, you could argue that they're, you know, f- I, I don't know if it's like four of the top <laughs> eight or nine or six, I don't know, but they're four of the best coaches and the league, and then just the quarterbacks. I mean, the possibility here for there be, to be a torch passing or a possible torch passing. I mean, there's a big difference between Mahomes versus Goff in the Super Bowl versus Breeze uh, and Brady. And so, just um, the opportunity here for there to be totally different stories going into the Super Bowl is is exciting. Totally different, but all perfectly fun, excellent narratives. So this is sort of a no-lose proposition for these championship games. Whatever of those four teams make the Super Bowl, the storylines will be plentiful. Um, All right. So let's hope for the Rams and the Chiefs both to win with their starting quarterbacks both getting hurt. Then we'll see how perfect (laughs) your narrative possibilities are. We can can ruin this still. Any any final uh, thoughts, Melissa? I don't know. You just depressed me there. I don't want to think about injuries. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of emotional connection to the Patriots, like on both ends of the spectrum. So that game with, and just with Mahomes, I think there's just so much awe, like that game is slightly more intriguing um, until it get until it's not close and it won't be. But yeah, any, any, any combination of these games, it's it's a win for the NFL. We, you know, defense. I guess wins championships, but everyone loves offense, and and there's to there's stars on there's stars across the board. Um, maybe not as big as Sean McVay in LA, but you know, Melissa, I, I can't let you go without asking you about your seven year old son's book report. It sounds like you made him read a book and write a synopsis. You wrote on Twitter. He chose a uh, a Tom Brady uh, biography. And his report included this line, Tom had too many calls. He had to switch his phone three times. <laughs> I know. One, one of those t- wasn't one of those times because he was destroying evidence in <laughs> Deflategate? I don't know if they had the Deflategate chapter in the little, you know, 10-page biography in 72 font that was designed for seven-year-olds. He wasn't but... reading the Charlie Pierce book? <laughs> <laughs> he was not, but yeah, it was, it was, it was nice to have that, that fun fact heading into the game. I, you know, I viewed it all, all differently, but he, um, you know, I, as somebody who's you know, covering all these games, he's, he's watching a lot of football, um, subsequently and, 
I feel bad. So I'm like, all right, he has to do something to, to utilize, you know, work his brain cells a little bit. So put him in his room, you know, 20 minutes, just go, go find some book in your room and, you know, write a little, write one page about it. And then I didn't even know we had a Tom Brady book to be honest, but you know, he did. And, and we all, we all learned a new fun fact about Brady. Melissa Jacobs writes at the football girl. She hosts the football girl podcast. Thank you for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about the Rooney Rule and the NFL, I want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will be talking about Kyler Murray. We had a conversation about him a couple weeks ago about his choice between uh, baseball and football. Major League Baseball now increasingly desperate to get him uh, uh, on the field. We'll talk about uh, what they're trying to do to get Mr. Murray into the fold. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The player workforce in the NFL is about 70% African-American. Head coaches, not so much. Five of the eight coaches fired since the middle of this season were black, dropping the number of African-Americans leading teams to just two out of 32, or 6.25%. And their replacements so far have all been white. This feels like a static conversation, Josh. The NFL has had the Rooney Rule that forces teams to interview minority candidates since 2002, but a lot of teams seem to use it as window dressing, most recently the Oakland Raiders when they hired John Gruden last year. The league tweaks the Rooney Rule to make it seem like they're doing something. Most recently, they announced that they were going to make teams interview at least one minority candidate for coach or GM from a list. They're also required Requiring the owner or other decision maker to sit in on interviews. This doesn't seem to change. So the shift from seven to two totally changes the conversation, right? Like, I don't think we would be saying that nothing had changed if it was still seven out of 32 coaches or if it had gone up from seven. And so the fact that we can have such a dramatic shift in a single year does suggest that there is still a problem. Then again, if you look at each of these individual decisions, I don't I think Steve Wilkes getting fired by the Cardinals after getting only a single year going 3 and 13 seems pretty indefensible to me. The other ones, the Browns firing Hugh Jackson, he had a horrible record and they improved after he left. That seems like totally legit. Marvin Lewis of the Bengals, people thought when I say people, I mean everyone thought that he was going to get let go after the previous season. He's been with the Bengals for 15 or 16 years, and they haven't made the playoffs That's in a while. sort of an outlier. Totally legit. Um, Todd Bowles and the Jets, he'd been there for three years. They were going nowhere. That's very typical for the NFL, that if you're going nowhere after three years, then you get let go. The Broncos, Vance Joseph, 
He only had two years. That one is more of an uh, on the borderline. So for me, it's it's more of a pipeline issue than it is an issue with any of these individual decisions. We can get into the Wilkes one a bit more in a minute. But the problem is that the pool that NFL teams are selecting from primarily offensive coaches these days, coordinators and quarterback coaches, is that black coaches aren't getting the opportunities there. So that when these head coaches, these um, this minority of head coaches, the numbers dwindle, then it just feels like the the next rung, the folks who should be getting the opportunity, they just aren't there. But that's an issue, I think, as much of approach as it is of reality. You can say, oh, head coaches need to come out of offensive ranks. Um, or you can just say, look, there are a lot of coaches on staffs of NFL teams who are black. They may be position coaches. They may be special teams coordinators. They're defensive coordinators. Not that many still. There's only like four out of 32 special teams coordinators right now in the NFL are black. But isn't it really like more about the decision-making process. Jim Trotter was on the NFL Network a few days ago talking about this, and he said he doesn't think it's an offense-defense issue or even a league issue. He thinks it's it's an owner issue, that until owners become comfortable with the people that they're hiring, with their own attitudes toward minorities and increasing the number of minorities in their organizations, things are not going to change very much. And as long as the ownership rank is overwhelmingly old white men, it's we're not going to get that much progress. It's going to be fits and starts, and it's going to be rules that try to force teams to do something or at least show the appearance of doing something. I think that's right um, in a macro sense, but I still feel like the issue here is that black coaches primarily, if you look at the numbers, um, are concentrated on the defensive side of the ball. And this would be less of an issue, I feel like, if you could look at all areas of the game in a sport in which 70% of the players are black, and there were tons of offensive coaches that were black. There were tons of uh, defensive coaches that were black, and there were just like a huge number of options because, again, it, it just feels like – if you look at any of these individual decisions – it it just shouldn't feel like if this one individual guy gets fired, there's like nobody else left. Because like Vance Joseph, for example, this case is a little bit more fraught because there were sexual assault allegations against him when he was a defensive backs coach in Colorado in 2004. It was a murky situation. It was kind of forgotten about, resurfaced again in 2017, was not entirely clear that the Broncos had done all of their due diligence. He ended up getting the job. But um, it just feels like if there's a really small pool of people who are given an opportunity, you don't want to be put in a position where it's like, okay, I don't think any of these people should be fired because then the representation is going to be so much lower. Like I think, again, Todd Bowles, just based on standard practice in the NFL, that guy should have been fired. Marvin Lewis, based on standard practice in the NFL, that guy was around way longer than he should have been. Vance Joseph, I'm not going to sit here and say I was like really sad to see that guy leave the NFL. The issue is like the next rung. And I think that's why 
you know, other coaches, black coaches in the league were so upset about the Wilkes situation in particular because it like takes so much. This guy's 49 years old, took him a long time to get this opportunity, has one year um, where he goes three and 13 on a team where every offensive lineman gets injured with a rookie quarterback. Um, he and- took over a team that didn't have a quarterback on the roster when he was hired. Sam Bradford, like he was pretty, he's been okay in the league when he's been healthy, except that he's never healthy. He is awful at the beginning of the year. They put in Josh Rosen. He's bad and the offensive line can't protect him. It's just an awful situation for him to be in. And then when you have the history of, say, a coach like Jim Caldwell, who has had winning, you know, he had a couple winning seasons in Detroit before he got canned. Um, He got a couple opportunities, but the Black coaches don't get recycled in the same way that white coaches do. It just seems like Wilkes might not ever get another chance. And so that just, I think if you're a black assistant in the league, if you look at that, that's the situation that you point to where it seems like this would not happen to a white coach. And it makes it feel like I'm going to be held to this ridiculously unfair Standard. Well, I think that's the right point because what you were saying earlier about you could justify firing Todd Bowles. Well, I think what's important to then look at is could you also justify firing any number of white coaches that have had three or more seasons in the league that maybe deserve, I'm making air quotes, to be fired here? The undefeated looked at um, all the data since the Rooney Rule took effect in 2003. Um, to try to compare how white coaches and black coaches are treated. And I don't think there's, it doesn't seem like there's a huge disparity there. Um, though there are some telling points. Black coaches are more often on the hot seat. Um, black coaches only, um, the percentage of black coaches that get at least four seasons in their position is much lower than for white coaches. So they get a longer chance to, to turn things around. Um, more black coaches by a tiny bit got second chances compared to white coaches. Ah, um, so so I was wrong. You were wrong. And I think most important, black coaches get the least viable jobs in the league. So they're hired by the Arizonas and the Clevelands. Um where it's a and the Jets, where the 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 mountain is a lot higher to climb. Brian Flores, the Patriots um defensive coordinator, who's probably gonna get the job in Miami. He's black, son of Honduran immigrants. He came up with the Patriots on the lowest rung of that organization as, you know, I think the football equivalent of like the tape guy, like what Eric Spolstra was for for the Miami Heat and just worked himself up rung after rung after rung. And it's just a harder climb for black coaches and for minority coaches is that you have to prove yourself and be with an organization for more than a decade and luck out and have that organization be the preeminent organization in all of football and a place where other teams go looking and scouting for prospects. But it's just a totally different career path. What the NFL, I think, really needs to begin doing, and who knows whether this will happen, Josh, is talking to coaches on the line, coaches, backfield coaches, special teams coaches, defensive whatever coaches, running backs coaches, to find out how they feel about this hiring process and how stacked it feels for them. And I think that's a very important component to this. It's like very few African-American coaches are willing to speak out about this. One that did recently 
is in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay hired uh, Bruce Arians to be their head coach. They also, then Arians in turn, has hired all three of his coordinators, offense, defense, and special teams are African-Americans, as well as an assistant head coach, Harold Goodwin. And Goodwin was quoted by ESPN last week. He spoke out about having been interviewed multiple times for head coaching jobs and what he has come away with from the process. And he said, every time I went to interview, you don't call plays. That was the rap against him by whoever was interviewing him. Well, I did call plays in the preseason, he says. Um, are we looking for play callers or are we looking for leaders? He's, he's quoted as saying, leaders of men who can help build an organization from the ground up on the football side. The next excuse was, well, we don't like your staff. A lot of my staff is still coaching. Some guys are coordinators in the NFL now that we've had a lot of success that were, that were on my list. Um, so it's this this cultural disconnect and the appearance from his perspective, it seems that they're looking for excuses not to hire him. I think Eric Bieniemy of the chiefs is the only black offensive coordinator of the NFL. And he doesn't call the plays Andy Reid does. And so that is potentially a knock against him. But the thing that needs to be acknowledged here is so Sean McVay um, is responsible totally for the Rams turnaround I, I mean not totally they have aaron donald but um and good players i think jared goff is not the greatest quarterback in the nfl and i think he's succeeded to the level he's succeeded because of mcveigh and so it makes sense that teams would want to find the next mcveigh it's not crazy that you would want if cliff kingsbury is sean mcveigh then it's a great hire again the issue here is that it might be ridiculous to think of Kingsbury as the next McVeigh, but if you want, you couldn't even like make a, a hire of a Kingsbury like figure who is black there because the, you know, black coaches aren't given the opportunity to tutor quarterbacks or to be considered offensive gurus. So even if there is like a bubble here, it's not one that black coaches can take advantage of. And, and ownership needs to look at, black coordinators, black position coaches, and think that they could become the next Sean McVay. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Late last week, Andy Murray announced in a press conference in the run-up to the Australian Open that the pain in his right hip had gotten to be too much and that he's almost done. Let's listen. You know, I, I, I can't. You know, I can't keep doing this, and that I needed to have like an end point um, because it, I was sort of just just playing with no idea of when the sort of the, the pain was gonna pain was gonna stop, um, and I, I felt like making that decision. Um, you know, I, I said to my team, "Look, I think I can kind of get through this until." Until Wimbledon, that is where where I would like to. That that that's where I would like to stop um, stop playing. 
Joining us now to discuss Sir Andy is Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine. Issue number eight of Racket is now available. Check it out. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, Josh. How is it? Uh, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? How are you holding up? You know, I'm glad you asked. I am pretty bummed out. I've been in a bit of a wistful, sad fog for the past couple of days since Andy gave that press conference. And uh, it's the end of an era. I'm, I'm pretty sad. So on Monday, uh, he lost in the first round of the Aussie Open four-hour match, which is not a very kind thing to do to someone who has a bum hip. Uh, he lost to Roberto Batista Agu, and he got uh, the kind of acclamation that we traditionally see in these send-off matches, um, like the Andre Agassi, Marcos Bagdadis match. There are a, a bunch um, that we can uh, recall here. But then afterwards... Caitlin Murray said, I hope I hope I'll be back. It doesn't seem like he has really decided what he wants to do. He could have surgery and, and try a comeback. I actually think this will probably not be then for him. I would if I had to bet, I would guess that he's gonna try to keep playing. But he's like it it's definitely possible that this was his last match ever. I it sounded like it. It sounded like this was his last Australian Open, for sure, to me. I'm glad to hear you interpret that differently, um, because I know he had talked a little bit about how much he wanted to sort of go and make one final stand at Wimbledon. Obviously, the site of his probable career lifetime, you know, achievement award winning a title there. But also, it's it's as close as home turf as it's going to get for him. And having them give him a send off, I think, is worth whatever probably anguish, terrible pain he has to put up with uh, in the next couple months to get there. But it sounded like the end for me at the Australian. Uh, you think there's a chance he, he'll come back? Well, he said, Stefan, after the match that he, he has two options. Option number one is basically try to manage this situation, be in pain on a day-to-day basis, and then try to like, like ramp up like, for one last match at Wimbledon, not playing any matches until then. Right, like real pain, too. Let's be clear. I mean, walking pain, tying your shoes pain, waking up in the morning pain. Or he says, I could have a really big op- operation um, and actually try to come back. And it seemed like maybe it was the adrenaline from playing this match, but it seems like he's at least considering the option of having a major hip surgery. Yeah, I'm a little I'm always a little uncomfortable when athletes do the preliminary retirement thing, like you announce your retirement before you're about to play in a tournament or play in an event. Mm. I don't know. I I detected some wiggle room there. I mean, I can't keep doing this. The pain won't stop. It's not you. It's me. It felt like Andy Murray was breaking up with us, but that there was the prospect <laughs> for makeup sex down the road. What a great image to put in my mind of Andy Murray's creaky hips. Um, and makeup sex. So thank you for that. Andy Murray is kind of like the world's tennis boyfriend, though. I was yeah. thinking about this before um, Stefan even said it. Like you had Naomi Osaka. She wasn't talking about it in terms of a relationship, but she said she it, it seemed like, Caitlin, she doesn't actually know Andy Murray. But her quote was like, it feels like I lost someone who could have been a friend. Just like a oh. very, very odd hypothetical. But like Andy Murray has been... Um, on the men's tour, the sometimes only guy, it seems like, who respects the women on the other side, had a, a woman coach. His mother, Judy, was the driving force in his career. And so I think both women and also men who don't want 
athletes to be assholes have this kind of love and respect for him. And I think that's what a lot of this outpouring is about. And to add to that, Josh, of course, he has stood up for the idea of pay equity in women's tennis, which not every top male player has done. He is a loss to the women's tour as much as he's a loss to the men's tour. uh, If in fact, this is the end stages, which, you know, again, I hope it's not. He can name off the top of his head, uh, you know, a match in the first round of a tournament four months ago when he runs into a player and says, hey, I saw your match. Great job. He watches women's tennis. He cares about women's tennis. He cares about equality. He cares about um, the sport and the health of the sport. And he's been extremely outspoken and and reminding reporters who ask him how it feels to defend a gold medal um, and be the first person to do so. And he'll correct them and say first male person to do so, because obviously Serena Williams did that. So just, you know, it's interesting because in this sort of eulogizing that we're all doing, first of all, all the women players had something to say about him because of how sadly rare his respect and sort of elevation of their efforts uh, he has made. And then second of all, you know, nobody's really talking about his tennis, which is neither, it's neither a derisive statement on my part about his tennis, nor is it, you know, maybe the point, but he's just like such a lovely person. He's kind of like, yeah, the gruff boyfriend who has a heart of gold who, you know, he's getting transferred out of the country and you got to say goodbye to him and nobody really wants to see him, see him go. And I think that that's, embodying certainly my feelings about him definitely the the players on the tour as well what else is it do you feel josh and caitlin that we like about andy i mean because it's you know he's not the most he's certainly not packaged he's not a nike product he's not a logo um he's not always genial in his demeanor he is candid. He swears a bunch. He wears those clunky ankle braces. Which I think do not all make the stuff look, you're describing is great. Right. Um, which make him look a little bit sort of awkward on the court. Not exactly, you know, as sleek as, as, as Roger Federer. Um, I mean, he, he was out of his control was the fact that he was born when he was born and he had to be sort of nudge his way into the big three to make it a big four with Nadal, Djokovic and Federer. Um, and I think it's that more than anything that people really appreciate that because of the way he looks and the way he acts, that his game doesn't feel like it naturally belonged. And yet he forced his way into the pantheon of this generation's top talents. I think it's a sort of a fitting irony that the way that he had to make himself assert himself in, in what in any other time would have been his era to dominate against three of the uniquely singular, which it might sound redundant, but Nadal Federer and Djokovic are all freaks in different ways. And he has no business winning a grand slam, much less a handful in that, in the same era that they're competing. And the way he did it was obviously about just tenacity, fitness, um, creativity, the way he plays, he's got feather soft hands. He had to, he had to really outthink them. He's a tape nerd. He kind of famously goes to the tape more than anybody else and preps more than from what we understand anybody, certainly in his era and everybody else who kind of could hold, um, you know, a candle to him from that sort of second tier of player who didn't push their way into the big three to make it the big four to your point, Stefan, uh, faded away. And I think the irony of that is it tore his body up and a hip injury is just a no go. It's a no go for a guy in a in a grass court era where the points are fast and you're a serve and volleyer. 
Uh, it's in, certainly a no-go in grinded-out tennis, which is what we have now with slow courts and anybody willing to extend a point or a match into four or five hours, which is why, again, losing in the first round to Roberto Batista, a, good, a great player but a grinder on a slow Australian Open court in four hours and five sets is kind of the most Andy Murray way to go out. Um, and so even in what hopefully won't be, but in my view will be his last Australian Open. He goes out very much the way he he hung in there, which is just grueling physical tennis that didn't, and and in some cases sort of obscured how funny and smart and dry and, and vibrant he was inside his own head, which is why he was such a sort of interesting character. So it was just sort of this, of course he lost last night. Of course he played five sets. Of course it took four hours. Uh, and of course he's crying about it and everyone's, and everyone's weeping. It's just, it's, it's kind of a fitting, a fitting bow tie uh, in a lot of ways on, on his, on where his career is at this moment. That was incredibly well said. So uh, I don't feel like I have a ton to add, but I think the one thing that we um, would be remiss not to include is the fact that he had all this pressure on him with the whole, no Brit having won Wimbledon thing and how he took that on. He um, lost several times and was clearly gutted by it, um, cried, was felt bad that he had let everyone down, which is a ridiculous sentiment to have, but always expressed himself honestly and, and openly and wore that emotion very proudly and, and openly. And just the way that he delivered and finally won uh, Wimbledon. He also won an Olympic gold medal in the London Olympics in 2012. And as Caitlin said, it's just another example of this guy who, in an era in which he was not the best player, and in an era in which the guys that came after him, Nick Kyrgios, um, maybe somebody like a Raonic, guys who are probably better, more talented players— just succumbed repeatedly to the likes of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. Murray never did, and he actually got to the mountaintop, was number one for more than 40 weeks, won three Grand Slam titles. That, I think, Caitlin, is why the men in particular have responded in the way that they have. Everybody's saying, you gave it everything you had. You were the ultimate grinder. It's just like so much respect for him for the fact that he fought both on the court and fought it in this era. As you were talking just now, an image came into my head, which might only make sense for fellow children of the 90s, as, as I know you and I are. It's, it's the original Terminator model embodied by Arnold Schwarzenegger being lo- slowly lowered into the lava at the end of <laughs> Terminator 2, surrounded, defeated, but somehow triumphant over the T2 flashy, sleek models, holding his thumb up to the sun figure <laughs> in Edward Furlong's character, which is where... Andy Murray is gazing out until his, you know, the next uh, onto the next generation, the the beat up, defeated, but ultimately, you know, here to be in our hearts forever. Original Terminator model. That that is about as Andy Murray as it's going to get for a pop culture equivalent. And for me, it's a pretty it's a pretty fitting one. You know, thumbs up to you, Andy Murray. Now what, guys? Federer is thirty seven. Murray's only thirty one. Uh, Djokovic is also thirty one. You talk, what about Nadal? About he still exists. Nadal does still exist, but he's also in his thirties. <laughs> he's also in his thirties and and more broken or as broken as Andy Murray, possibly. We don't really know right now, do we? Um, so now, what happens if there is that gap, that generational gap? Um, how long can we go before there's a big two or three or four or a big one even that can replace Federer, Djokovic, 
Nadal Murray? I will tell you that at least I'm hoping for it. Is it is possible, based on the way the draw has shaped up, that Alex Verov, Sasha, as he's known, could make a breakthrough at this tournament. He's amazing. He won the tour championships in the in the fall this year in 2018, uh, last year in 2018, and he is basically only stymied in five-set tournaments, which is to say all the important tournaments, but everywhere else he's dominant and he's got the game. I kind of, if Andy Murray can't win it, which I knew he wouldn't, but he's definitely not going to now, then come on, let's do, let's let's totally skip a next generation and let's go to like Pass, the really exciting one-hander out of Greece. Let's go Alexander Zverev, um, the German who has basically been poised for a breakthrough now for two years. You know, Nadal's creaky. Djokovic has, has looked unstoppable, but he's kind of like one weird elbow tweak away from being sidelined again. Federer, you never know with Federer. Um, it's hard to root against him or root or count him out, but I actually think Sasha Zverev could have the tournament. So if anybody's going to do it, um, my money's on him. Um, and, you know, because I'm personally ready. Like, I like the big three. I can talk about them endlessly and, and sing their praises. Um, I think Djokovic will probably end up with the most grand slams at the end of the day. Um, maybe even rivaling Serena, who's going to get 24 in the next 18 months or so. But I actually, I, I think Sasser Zverev is the young one to watch who could sort of reestablish the order. And then, you know, the, the rest will kind of be fleshed out around him as this new generation comes into their own. I think it's time. Don't sleep on Karen Hachanov. There you go. He's another one. Um, all right. I want to end this with just random weirdo Andy Murray memories because I have one and I'm sure Caitlin, the nerd that she is, has one. My memory, we talk about what like an amazing feminist Andy Murray is, but what nobody talks about is that the British tabloids reported a long time ago, late 2000s, I'm sure Caitlin remembers this, that his then girlfriend, now wife Kim Sears, broke up with him because he played video Uh games seven hours a day. And among the video games that he played were unidentified tennis video games. That's how much this guy was committed to tennis. He was playing like (laughs) Mario Tennis or some shit. And it ruined his relationship. That's the kind of commitment that I want to see. My personal favorite is Andy Murray, the uh, social media phenomenon. Like, yes, he's a feminist. He's tweeting about matches and analysis. Yes, he's sort of a dad figure for these other sort of ne'er-do-wells on the tour, like Nick Curios, who are looking up to him um, and kind of giving him light ribbing and, and vice versa. But Andy Murray as the sort of dry Instagram comedian is really, really underrated. And actually, if we can't have him on the court, I want him on Instagram. This guy is Instagramming pictures of himself in the holiday sweater He's got a picture of his, him and his mother grimacing over her, like, Dancing with the Stars appearances. Um, and in one of my favorite ones, he's in a tub with a rubber ducky and an arrow pointing toward it saying, this is my duck, which is, <laughs> you know, show me, show me Federer doing that, uh, and, and I'll, I'll be ready to embrace him with the enthusiasm that I have, Andy Murray. So um, Andy Murray, Instagram star, I'm, I'm, I hope we still get him. I'm looking at the 2014 Christmas Andy Murray tweet. He's wearing the sweater, and it is quite a sweater. I think everyone should just go look it up. But my favorite parts of the photograph are the very English-looking, he's not English, but very British-looking living room. Uh, A, B, the look on Andy Murray's face, it is the death stare Andy Murray look. And C, Mm -hmm. he has a tiny plate on his lap that I think held the cookies that were destined for Santa Claus. Ooh. And it's empty. (laughs) Cut. My, 
I think we're. I have no other. I have no further Andy Murray anecdotes, but I could riff with you guys uh, for a while if you'd like on these ones. <laughs> I think we're good. That's a hell of a sweater. Uh, it is. All right. The, the clock. The clock is at one a.m. It looks like in front of the hearth. There's a hearth. There are stockings. It's red. It's crazy. Nothing uh, better on a podcast than than describing a. A photograph. Uh, But I didn't read the tweet. As you can see, I'm chuffed to bits with my Christmas (laughs) jumper. Hashtag fire in the belly. (laughs) There we go. Caitlin Thompson, Racket Magazine, issue number eight, now available. Always with a fire in the belly. Caitlin, Andy Murray is going to come back. Courage. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs and Andy Murray. Love that guy. Had a long and productive career on the pro circuit. The first tournament he ever won was at the challenger level. No, sorry, it was at the futures level, the Great Britain F10 Futures. This is the first professional tournament that he won. He had uh, had a successful junior career before that. This was in uh, September of 2003, the Great Britain F10 Futures. Uh, this was in Glasgow. And on the way to that title, he beat a young man named Oliver Freelove, According to Oliver Freelove's Wikipedia page, he is now in the finance industry and currently works for Merex Spectron, which is sounds amazing. I found a story about Oliver Freelove from 2000. Uh, he was a bit older than, than Murray. So in 2003, the guy was already uh, 26 years old. In 2000, um, he lost a match to a guy that the Telegraph – decried for his on-court theatrics. And at the end of this article, it says, free love is an airfix kit of a player possessing all the right parts to make a contender. If only they can be glued together in the right order. That will take time and practice and experience of the kind of opponents that the tour can throw at you. Airfix kit? Now he's uh, in the finance industry. I think it's like a model airplane situation. Stefan, what is your Oliver free love? Well, I went up to the Palestra on Saturday to watch my Penn Quakers play Odious Princeton in men's basketball. After shocking Villanova last month, which I may have mentioned here, Penn went to the pit in Albuquerque and beat New Mexico to run its record to 10-2. and two. And then, Josh, disaster, an injury to a key player, losses to Toledo, winless Monmouth, and then in the Ivy League opener, 68-65 to 65 in overtime to fucking Princeton. To avoid other scheduling problems, Penn and Princeton agreed to start the Ivy season with home-and-home home games, which makes no sense competitively or rivalry-ly. Penn students weren't even back from winter break on Saturday. Anyway, goddamn Princeton won again, 62-53. to 53. But there's an Ivy tournament now, so the Quakers still have a shot at returning to the NCAAs. At halftime of the game, as it does in every year ending in a four or a nine, 
Penn honored the 1979 team that made the Final Four with one of the craziest runs in college basketball history. They beat Iona, number one seed North Carolina, Syracuse, and St. John's before falling to Michigan State and Magic Johnson, 101 to 67. Most of the members of the 40th anniversary team were there. Tony Price, who was drafted by the Pistons but didn't stick in the league, but whose son AJ played six seasons uh, in the NBA. James Booney Salters, Vincent Ross, Tim Smith, Bobby Willis, the head coach Bob Weinauer, now 79, was there too. Everyone got a ring and a big ovation. One player, however, had to be represented at the ceremony by his two children. And as we watched the introductions, a friend reminded me why. A few years ago, Matt White was murdered by his wife. After graduating from Penn, White was drafted by the Trailblazers, but he was cut and played more than a decade in Spain, where he met his wife, Maria Garcia Pelon. After returning to the States, the family lived in suburban Philadelphia, where in the early 2000s, Garcia Pelon was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression. One day in February 2013, concerned about delusional behavior, White took his wife to a local hospital. She was discharged with an appointment for treatment. After returning home, she hid two kitchen knives under the bed. When White fell asleep, she stabbed him in the neck. Garcia Pelon would tell police that she killed White because he was viewing child pornography. None was found. According to trial testimony, she told doctors that she killed him because he wouldn't let her publicize that a school shooting like Sandy Hook was about to happen. She told a friend that the government was spying on her through Facebook. Two other friends testified that she said her internet service had been hacked and her phone was bugged by the Chinese. In 2015, Garcia Pelon was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, but determined to be mentally ill. The judge effectively sentenced her to up to two years in a psychiatric hospital, followed by 23 years probation. White's family, including his two adult children, sat behind Garcia Pelon at the trial and supported the sentence. White was a key player on the 1979 team, a 6'10 center who averaged 12 points a game. He was a walk-on at Penn, a classical pianist who engaged teammates in deep conversations and would take a break from his pro career to return to Penn to get an MBA. On the run to the Final Four, Penn knocked off four coaching legends, Jim Valvano at Iona, Dean Smith, Jim Beheim, and Lou Carnesecca. Another one waited in the semifinal, Judd Heathcote of Michigan State. Early on in the game, Penn broke the Spartans' defense, but the Quakers missed layup after layup. Then they shot back-to-back air balls. At the other end, Magic and Greg Kelser shot the lights out. Penn trailed 15-6, 31-9, and at halftime, 50-17. Stage fright, Matt White told reporters after the game. Then we kind of put our heads down a bit when we missed a few. You can say we were intimidated. You can say we were nervous. The shots just didn't drop for whatever reasons. Josh, what's your Oliver Free Love? Back in December, the Twitter account Quirky Research tweeted out a screenshot from an old newspaper story with the caption, On this date in 1932, Corsicana won an otherwise scoreless Texas high school championship game by tiebreaker. The story, which was from the Amarillo Globe Times, explained that the Corsicana Tigers defeated the Masonic home team from Fort Worth on the basis of 20-yard line penetrations. 
The game ended scoreless, but under agreement of coaches that it had been decided that such a deadlock should be broken by declaring the team victorious, which gained the most penetrations. Corsicana's powerful aggregation thrust inside the enemy's danger zone five times, while the visitors failed to advance that far once during the game. This was maybe not the oddest and most alarming thing that happened in this game because, as the story goes on to explain, in the final period, temporary bleachers in the end zone seating 3,000 spectators collapsed and hurled hundreds to the ground below. But not to worry. Only one person was injured seriously enough to warrant medical attention. But back to the penetration situation. This tiebreaker actually existed in Texas high school football until 1996, And so you can find lots of stories out there about losses by penetration. We didn't know what to do or how to react, said Kemper Aylor, who played on a 1963 team that lost by penetration. He was talking to Mike Lee of the San Angelo Standard Times in a story published 51 years after that game. Coach Bellard knew the stats. He knew the situation. We didn't know until he grouped us together after the game and told us that we had lost by one penetration. Major uh, college football, you might recall, had no overtime and no tiebreakers until 1996. I found a story published in 1973 after Nebraska and Oklahoma State had played to a 17-17 tie in which the Cowboys coach said, I think I might be in favor of some method like penetrations or first downs. Indeed, first downs were the second tiebreaker after penetrations in Texas high school football with total offense, the third tiebreaker. So you could get uh, some perverse incentives because of this penetration uh, uh, deal. Uh, There was a game in 1986 in which a coach instructed his uh, players to let the opposing team score because they were tied. Uh, They were losing on penetration. So the only way that they could win the game was to allow the other team to score so that they could get the ball back and then potentially score to take the lead because otherwise they would lose on penetrations. Um, In the course of researching this and and looking up uh, the penetration rules and whatnot, I found an even more amazing tiebreaker scenario, which was in California high school uh, football. It's known as the California tiebreaker. Each team would get the ball at the 50-yard line. And this was, I think, true up in like through the 80s. Get the ball at the 50-yard line, and teams would alternate plays four plays each, and the winning team would be the one that had the ball in the other team's territory. So it was like tug of war. So you start at the 50, team A like advances it to the 40, then team B gets the next app, they get it into the other team's territory. Wait, wait, wait. And so- it just goes back and forth for eight plays, and whoever uh, has the ball in the other team's territory wins. That's pretty cool. California so tiebreaker. team breaker. A goes forward. Let's say they rush for seven yards. Yeah. Team B gets the ball at the 43. Yeah. Where the team A's penetration ended. Yes. Wow, that's cool. You like like this tiebreaker? I like that tiebreaker. California tiebreaker, baby. What happens if the ball ends up on the 50 at the end of the eight plays? (laughs) My research uh, did not. uh, Is it then a tie? For that situation. I guess maybe you just do one play each until the tie is broken. That's my guess. Who knows? Uh, that is our show for today. Now, you know, back, if you know the California tiebreaker rules, let us know. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelma Beatty and thanks for listening.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.